Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Hi, I have the pleasure to be with Anand Agarwal in the context of the International Conference of Education Innovation in Tech de Monterrey. Anand, welcome and it's great to have you here. Uh, Pepe, uh, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, it's been an absolutely fantastic world-class conference. And uh, I've met so many amazing people and uh, had so many amazing interactions at Tech de Monterey. This is my first visit to uh, campus. And so I'm uh, just so excited you invited me and uh, I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks a lot. And I hope, I hope it will be the first of uh, many uh, times that you will come back um, to, absolutely. Our, to our campus. Indeed. 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 So I would like to start asking you about edX. You're the CEO of uh, edX. And, uh, and you're um, one of the persons or the person that started this conversation around uh, doing these uh, courses online. How it became an idea in your mind being a, an, a professor in um, uh, electric uh, engineering, am I right? And computer science. And computer science. How it became in your mind this idea of doing this uh, Platform edX. How how come you get into education? Is it, I don't know. It was it was accidental. But uh, you know, MIT had done open courseware uh, almost 20 years ago in 2000, and my course was an MIT courseware. And so uh, MIT had pioneered you know putting course materials online. And then you know I was seeing technology advance so much, and uh, technology being applied to almost every aspect of humanity. But digital technology wasn't being applied to education. And so to me, the challenge was labs were going to be very hard. How do we do labs? So in 2003, I launched a, one of the first circuits labs at MIT. It was called WebSim. So even today, you can Google WebSim MIT. You'll go to my website. And I built that lab myself. It was well before MOOCs. It was the first MOOC lab. And on the average day... 300, 400 people would come in and do a free, a set of free circuits laboratories. And that gave me confidence that, you know, this can actually work, that people from all over the world can actually not only learn like with open courseware, with course materials, but we can also do interactive labs. And this gave us the confidence. And then in um, late 2011, when MIT and Harvard began to get together to think about launching an online learning platform, I was so enthusiastic to be part of it and to launch a nonprofit approach to online education and to build a platform with simulation and, and all of these technologies. In fact, the first course on edX was uh, the circuits course my colleague and I taught. And we had a circuits lab inspired by the circuits lab that I had built in 2003. So that's how I kind of got into it, somewhat by accident. So I, um, I, I, I'm one of the founding members of the board of Open Courseware Consortium, the consortium that was formed uh, afterwards. But yeah, I did not realize that. Ah, yes, I was part of, of oh that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, okay. Yes. So okay. uh, I, I remember that when I was in the consortium, I was one of the people that say, well, putting the content out there is nice, but we are not sure that people are really uh, using that to learn. So for me, the uh, MOOCs was like uh, just the right step afterwards. Now you have that content, you have the wonderful material, but you have to put it in a place that many people can use it. Yes, I think the big difference from OpenCourseWare, OpenCourseWare was a pioneering thing in its time. Uh, imagine 
a top university in the world putting all its content for the world to use. But edX had three big improvements, innovations uh, above and beyond open courseware. One was certificate. We launched certificates on edX. And in fact, the edX course was the first time that a certificate was offered in a MOOC course. It was the first time it happened. Second was a graded assignments where people got instant feedback and the assignments were graded. At OCW, you had course materials, but on edX, people could submit problems and they were graded automatically. So they got instant feedback. So that was the second part. And the third part that was unique was the discussion forum where people could talk to each other and build a community while they were learning. So these were some of the three big innovations uh, that, uh, that took this to the next step from open courseware. Right. Can you tell me the, the numbers um, uh, that you have uh, of universities, courses, learners in edX in the last years? So first of all, when we started, when we launched the first course, it was the circuits and electronics course that my colleagues and I did. In that course, we had the first course on edX, we had 155,000 students from 162 countries. At that time, we had two partners, MIT and Harvard, and one course, and 155,000 learners. And this was in early 2012. Uh, here we are today, uh, uh, seven and a half years later. Uh, today on edX, we have 150 of the world's best institutions on our platform, including your own Tech the Monterey. We have uh, Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, Oxford, Cambridge, some of the top universities in the world and, and top companies like uh, IDB and nonprofits like, you know, and, and, and companies like IBM and and uh, Red Hat and Microsoft and Linux Foundation all offering courses. We have uh, uh, almost 25 million students on the platform from 196 countries, which is every single country in the world. And these 25 million students have taken 80 million courses on the platform. We have more than 3,000 courses on the platform today. We have almost 60 MicroMasters programs. We have more than 100 professional certificate programs. We launched a Spanish platform. Today, we have 300 courses in Spanish on our platform, and we have more than 3 million learners on our Spanish platform. That's fascinating, the, these numbers. And I, I wonder, uh, if you, uh, what, what, how we learn from what people learn with all this, that data, the, that uh, humongous amount of data from people from different backgrounds, different countries, different cultures, different languages also, because there are a lot of uh, content in different languages. Uh, is there some uh, 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 diamonds, findings? You know, when we started edX, uh, we had three key, it was a three-pillared mission. Increase access to education for everyone everywhere. Second was improve the quality of education on campus and online. And third was doing research with the big data of learning to learn about learning. And so we think of edX as a particle accelerator for learning. We're gathering all of this incredibly rich learning data and we're learning so much about learning. Uh, we make available all the data to our partner institutions. We have something called RDX, Research Data Exchange, where universities that opt in can share the data or research data for research purposes, which is very radical. 
Uh, just as one example, something radical that we learned. Did you realize that in 2012, edX discovered through this research data that six-minute videos were ideal? We had a researcher at edX, Philip Guo, and he analyzed five million video viewing sessions on a number of courses in edX. And he plotted student engagement versus video length. And he found that six-minute videos were the optimal size. Six minutes. Six minutes. And today, everybody quotes six, seven-minute videos are optimal. And that came from an edX study done in 2012. Right. So that is just one example of what we can do with this big data of learning. And we can look at millions of viewing sessions and from there derive insights into how students are learning. Are there any other uh, findings that you can share with us? About I could be sitting here talking all night long. I'll give you one more finding. And this was a finding from researchers who analyzed data and learning patterns uh, from um, uh, MIT. This was Lori Breslau at MIT, who you may know. When you come to campus, on campus, you go watch a lecture, and then they give you problems to work out. So you learn something, you hear something, and then they ask you to apply the learning in a problem. Also on edX, not surprisingly, when we looked at all the material is available, the problems, videos are all available to students all the time. So what we found is that generally, 70% of the students start learning with the video. And, and then they go and do the problems. 70% of the students start by learning with the video. But if you look at towards the end of a course, only 30% of the students are starting with the video. Towards the end of the course, it flips, completely flips. 70% of the students start to answer the homework and problem sets. And depending on where they don't understand the question, they go and watch a video. So students, their learning is much more inspired when you give them a problem to solve and then ask them to go and watch a video to learn. It's a much better way of teaching when you give them a problem. They get motivated to learn, and then they go and learn. Okay. So this completely, this was a very interesting result that showed that when students were given both problems and videos, yes. because they're used to watching videos first, they started watching videos first. 70% started watching videos first. But over time, 70% then began to answer the problem first. Okay. And on the edX platform, we gather all this data, so we know what students are learning, when they are doing it, we know everything. Interesting. So, so that means if I use an example of an Excel course, for instance, which is not maybe the case, but uh, if I, uh, it's better that I have access to content that teach me how to do a percentage on Excel in the moment when I'm going to use the percentage formula on Excel and not to learn it previously before applying that. Exactly. So it's just-in-time learning. Exactly, just-in-time learning. And we, we do have uh, some uh, amazing Excel courses on edX, Excel for data science okay. and Excel course on edX. And you're right. If I show you this beautiful analogy, Pepe, I love it. I'm going to use this analogy in my own uh, speeches in the future, if you don't mind. Uh, sure, you okay. can. So, uh, you know, traditionally we do a one-hour lecture on Excel. We tell them, oh, this is Excel, and here's how you do percentage, here's how you do addition. And we show them all this, and within 10 minutes, students are asleep. Instead, you tell them this is Excel, and you tell students, okay, go and uh, uh, add numbers, go do some percentages, and so on. And while they're trying to do that in Excel, 
Then if they have some difficulty, ask them to go watch a video. That is so much better. The just-in-time learning. Yes. Okay. So um, in, I think it was in 2012 that uh, there was this uh, year of the MOOC and the quote from the president. New York Times. And New York Times, uh, uh, there was a quote of, uh, I think it was John Hensey from Stanford, no? that MOOCs were like the big thing that were going to cause a revolution. So I, uh, I, I would like to ask you uh, um, a reflection on, on uh, what were expectations were so high at that time and if uh, the MOOCs have accomplished what we expected from them. Uh. You know, I think it, um, at MIT and Harvard, when we started edX, We had a clear set of guidelines and goals. We had a three-pillared mission. And to this day, we have stuck true to the mission. We did not think of this hype. There was a lot of hype coming from the West Coast, from the for-profit companies, where they were hyping up valuations and hyping up education and talking about how one of the for-profit companies even said that in, in 50 years, uh, there will be maybe five universities left in the world. And maybe, you know, we won't need that many professors. There were a lot of hype going on. But on the East Coast, we took the nonprofit approach to education. I think there, we were certainly a lot more in tune with what is possible. We were playing the long game. We knew that this is going to take a long time. We did not expect universities would go away. Heck, edX was founded by Harvard and MIT. Why would edX be founded by universities if universities were going to go away? So certainly we had a different view on the whole thing. And to this day, we have stuck true to the mission. Interesting. And uh, one more question for those that are aware of MOOCs uh, is um, um, completion rates. That is always brought up. What do you think about that? What can you tell us? So the way I think about completion rates is... It's very difficult to apply <laughs> 18th century metrics to 21st century technologies. For example, when you go to a movie, if you leave the movie, you pay $10 and you go for a two-hour movie, and you leave the movie halfway, that is not good. So you can say the goodness of a movie is completion rate. How many people went in? How many people stayed till the end of the movie? That is a good metric for a movie. But today, everybody watches five-minute YouTube videos. Is completion rate a good metric for YouTube videos where it's free, it's easy, you're watching a YouTube video while you're on the train? How many people do you know that watch every YouTube video to the end? I must have watched, I don't know, hundreds of YouTube videos. I haven't watched a single YouTube video to the end. So we cannot apply the same metric that we applied to movies in a theater for which we paid 10 bucks to YouTube videos. So the two are different things. It's like applying 18th century metrics to 21st century innovations. Similarly, I don't think we can apply the same kind of completion metric to MOOCs because you can start for free. You can't apply completion metrics from the 18th century to a product which is free, which you can just, with a click, you can start doing it. Instead, a better metric for MOOCs is the completion rate for people that have signed up for a certificate. So once you've signed up for a certificate, then you're saying, yes, I want to complete it. 
I'm interested in completing it. You have skin in the game because you're paying. You have skin in the game, you're paying, you have, uh, and it, it could be a small amount of money. It could be $25 or $50 for a certificate, and you have signaled a seriousness to complete it. Now it's fair to measure completion rate. Because when you come to a university, you paid university tuition. You go to uh, the Ivy League universities, you're paying tuition of $45,000 a year. So of course you're going to complete a course. Each course costs you $6,000. If you paid $6,000, you're not going to walk out from the course in five minutes. You're going to complete the course. And so similarly with MOOCs, I think the way completion rate should be measured is the percentage of people that pass of those that have signed up for a verified certificate. And on edX, that percentage is about 60%. For people that sign up for a verified certificate, 60% of them pass. And these are hard courses. These are not, you know, you, if you take the circuits course that I teach, it's an it's, it's, it's a MIT hard course. It's probably one of the hardest courses at MIT. Interesting. So it means that when people show some uh, commitment, like where they're paying, then you can count uh, that. Yes. So that, that, uh, a good uh, uh, rebunk on that uh, uh, completion rate problem that is signaled by many people on MOOCs. Um, also, edX was the first to uh, do uh, uh, micro-credentials uh, with a MicroMaster. I firmly believe that in the future we will see more um, the bundling of uh, the degrees uh, in universities. And I, am, I, I, I believe in, uh, in this kind of things like the MicroMaster, where people can find the right amount of uh, um, learning that they need to deliver a new, a new uh, uh, to do a new job. To have a new career outcome, for example. A new career yes. outcome, exactly. Where, where this uh, idea came from? So um, on edX, we were offering courses. And more and more students were telling us that they did not want just one course. They wanted a series of courses. They also wanted a credential for the series of courses so that they could learn a skill. They could learn enough in, a, in an area to earn a skill. And um, MIT launched the pioneering MicroMasters on edX in supply chain management. And so there, edX collaborated with MIT to launch the first MicroMasters. And we also collaborated on designing the MicroMasters. So for example, you know, how long should a MicroMasters be? That a MicroMasters must have, must have a pathway to credit. That a MicroMasters must have a endorsement by a company to signal career relevance. That was very important. Similarly, the pricing of the MicroMasters. So all of these ideas uh, we discussed and we did uh, surveys of learners. We talked to companies. We talked to university partners. Uh, a lot of discussions at MIT, inside MIT. And then we finally uh, uh, launched MIT's pioneering micro masters on edX. So quite a, thought, a lot of thought went into it. And one of the other pioneering aspects of the micro masters was the inverted admissions funnel. That was very important to MIT, which is... Usually when you admit students into a master's degree, you don't have a lot of information about the student. So particularly international students, you don't quite know how good was the university, are they good students, and so on. 
Because a um, GPA doesn't tell you a lot. The GPA it depends on the university. If you don't know the university too well, you don't know the courses the student took, uh, you don't know did they learn anything or did they just do the exams well, you don't know much. And so you can't quite tell for sure. So you're taking a chance on a student. With the MicroMasters, when a student completes the MicroMasters and has done well, you can now admit them because they've done courses from your university and they've done them well. So you have a lot more information on the student. And that's inverted admissions, where you're admitting students after they've already taken some courses from the university. That is also a very popular uh, feature of MicroMasters. So one possibility is looking at the MicroMaster as the starting point for a master's. And uh, what about uh, the acknowledgement that companies or employers are doing about the MicroMaster as a credential by itself, as, as something that I say, I believe that this habilitates uh, uh, Anand for doing data science or whatever? Yes. The, uh, these micro-credentials, the MicroMasters in particular, has two values. One is it is a valuable standalone credential. When imagine you get a MicroMasters from... Uh, Igada at Monterey Tech in entrepreneurship. Monterey Tech is one of the top universities in the world for entrepreneurship. That means something. You get a MicroMasters from MIT in uh, manufacturing. From MIT, that is of value in and of itself. At the same time, if you do well in the MicroMasters, you can apply for the master's degree and get admitted into a master's. And so it gives you a pathway to a master. So there's two sets of values. And on edX, 70% of the students are interested only in the micromasters. But 30% of the students are interested in following up and continuing for a master's degree. Do you have some data or information of how the employers are um, acknowledging these micromasters credentials and micro-credentials? So we take surveys of uh, learners who are completing micromasters. And of the surveys we've done of learners who completed MicroMasters, we do the surveys three months after they complete. And we keep doing surveys all along, but three months after they complete, we are finding that learners tell us that 87% of them have had a career advancement. 87%? 87% have had a career advancement within three months. What is a career advancement? A pay raise, a promotion, a new job. So this is a big deal. This is what learners are telling us. Mm -hmm. Now, with companies, we need to, as companies hire more and more and see more and more progression from MicroMasters learners, we believe that companies will also begin to recognize MicroMasters. And we have seen this already. Uh, the company in India, Tech Mahindra, one of India's top three software companies, uh, guarantee an interview to anybody from India that completes one of 10 MicroMasters. They have to complete one and they have listed 10 MicroMasters, they will guarantee them an interview. Similarly, in the US, GE will guarantee an interview to anybody from Massachusetts who has completed uh, a MicroMasters in supply chain management, in AI, uh, and uh, cybersecurity, and one other subject. So companies, more and more companies are now asking their employees to do MicroMasters. Many of them are now beginning to guarantee interviews to MicroMasters learners. So we are hoping that this will keep building up as we get more and more students who are completing MicroMasters and go to companies and uh, make their impact known. Interesting. It will be um, 
a good idea maybe to uh, dig a little bit more. We, we had a, a similar situation here with our online courses, not in edX, but with regular online courses. At the beginning, we saw that companies were not willing to recognize online degrees, online certificates, as well as face-to-face. But the later, when they realized that they were very good in the skills, but also that they showed some additional skills for those that study online and at a distance uh, that are related to persistency, self-agency, self-learning, or uh, people that are self-directed. Uh, and they say, this is the kind of people that I want to have here because they have these skills that are wonderful for the uh, I think this, this is a very good point. Uh, online degrees now, in the same way that you mentioned, are recognized by companies. Similarly, as companies realize that people that complete these credentials online uh, from top brands are quality, they know a lot, and they also have these extra extra qualities that you mentioned of perseverance and the ability to stay on task. Uh, these are all very important skills in the workplace. So, uh, so I don't think it will take too long before companies are seeking out people with these credentials. So MicroMasters has the master level and at the bachelor's level. So as you can imagine, we, we launched uh, uh, MicroMasters first four years ago. MIT was the pioneer. And there, uh, you know, it's funny, I'll tell you a story. When we began talking about um, the new credentials and so on that were backed by credit, many universities said, oh, no, 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 how can we do it? How can we give credit and so on? But the beauty was MIT was the first one to launch it. And so all the other universities said, oh, if MIT can do it, maybe it's okay. So th- that was very important. And we launched it first at the master's level. That was four years ago. Um, and now we've launched the micro bachelors at the undergraduate level. And the micro bachelors, in a similar way to the micro masters, is one to three courses at the undergraduate level that are industry endorsed, are built in consultation with industry that are backed by credit. So when someone completes the microbachelors, they will get credit on a university transcript. So they can now, a learner can stack these up towards a full degree. So the microbachelors is a similar important concept at the bachelor's degree level. So uh, normally the students that get into a bachelor's degree, they get um, fundamental or basic courses. So in the case of a microbachelors, it will be not fundamental courses. It will be more um, a sort of apply or specialized courses or how it will work? It will be a combination. Uh, Two things will be very different. One thing is, have you thought about this? When you go to a university, you are asked to take all kinds of mathematics, language, advanced mathematics, physics, advanced physics kinds of courses without any understanding of why you're taking those courses. I took advanced differential equations. I hated it. I had no idea. Why am I learning this stuff? You didn't know what the use of what's the What's the point of learning this differential equation? What's the point? Mm-hmm. And then three years later, I was taking a, a, a microeconomics and other subjects, and I'm now applying differential equations. And I'm saying, oh my God, why am I not learning differential equations now? So one idea with microbachelors is that we can flip the curriculum, flipped curriculum, which is maybe we can teach people Applications like computer science and maybe marketing, exciting things that can be applied in the workplace to start. And then depending on the mathematics they need, they can go and take 
microbachelors in mathematics. They can take microbachelors in physics. And so do it when needed. You don't have to do it in the usual sequence. So yes, we will have microbachelors both in foundation subjects and in the uh, applied subjects. And sometimes we'll combine them. So let's say, for example, with machine learning. Why should I go and learn linear algebra one year and machine learning in year three? Why can't I learn linear algebra followed by machine learning in one microbachelors? Because math for machine learning is linear algebra. So why can't I learn linear algebra and machine learning in one microbachelors? So you get a bundle that makes sense for the a job, but also you get the fundamentals for that at the same time. Exactly. So you get all the competencies you need for the job. And to get those competencies, you need to learn mathematics to learn the subject. And so you, so, and it's all applied. You're applying what you learn right away. So it is it really, you know, we need to rethink a lot of what we do in education because we've been doing the same thing over and over without really, really realizing uh, the harm that it has caused. Very interesting. I, I, I want to ask you one more question about a critic of uh, MOOCs that I, just came out on my mind and I didn't ask you in that part of the on our conversation. And I think it's very important because many people believe uh, that uh, it's true. Uh, and I want to ask you, what's the uh, status of that in edX? Uh, people say that MOOCs are um, created in a uh, met metaphor of uh, knowledge transfer, so that it treats the students as containers of knowledge and um, this, those videos and all the things that you do are uh, doing a transfer of knowledge to the students. And the more advanced uh, pedagogies uh, said that uh, the student has to construct the knowledge and it's more um, social construct, something that the student has to build uh, in contact with other students. So it's, uh, it's still true that uh, maybe, maybe the, the early MOOCs were more individualized and more alone. But how is the status of the pedagogy right now in MOOCs? From the very first day, when people say that the pedagogy of edX is container put knowledge in, they have not taken any edX courses. The very first edX course, and any course we do on edX is based on active learning, where we, we invented this concept called a learning sequence. So on edX, you see a learning sequence where videos are interleaved with assessments. And in the learning sequence, you show a video and then you ask a question. Maybe you ask the students to go to the discussion forum, discuss something. So transmission of knowledge and questions are interleaved. And that creates, so the basic pedagogy of the platform is active learning. More recently, we've advanced much more. Three years ago, we introduced peer instruction into edX. You know, Eric Mazu wrote the book on peer instruction. So now we have a peer instruction uh, uh, pedagogical block on edX, where you can teach something, you can ask students to submit uh, answers, you can take a poll of the students, you can do a cold call, you can ask a student a quick question, and then you can ask the students to discuss, and then you can ask the students to resubmit their answer. It's peer instruction. So we can do that uh, today, and, and a lot of courses are doing that. Very interesting. So the pedagogy has advanced a lot. And we are running out of time, and I will ask you, ask you my, my last question. Where do you see edX or online learning uh, in 10 years? Well, how you imagine the world will be in 10 years? Can be your, uh, your planning or your dream? What do you think? 
um, you know, whenever I dream something for five or 10 years out, I've discovered that it happens much sooner than possible. But my dream is to really create a very modular education system where at the undergraduate level or graduate level, learners can take these modular credentials, like micro-bachelors at the undergraduate level or micro-masters at the graduate level, where learners will be able to take these credentials like Lego blocks. They will be able to take them and then stack them up to full degrees. I believe they will also be able to take micro-bachelors and micro-masters from multiple universities and create a truly networked model of education where they will get degrees from universities, of course, but these modules might come from different universities and they will synthesize their own degrees and complete degrees. It'll be very low cost and anybody and everybody will have access to this kind of education, a truly modular networked education environment. So you can shape it to your own personal needs. You can, you can it's completely flexible. You can uh, tune it to your personal needs and you can also be a lifelong learner. You can say, Look, I won't learn a bachelor, I won't earn a bachelor's degree in the first four years. You know what? I will learn for one and a half years. I will get three or four micro bachelors. And then you know what? I want to go and work at that company. And while I'm working, I'll keep learning. I think you said just in time learning. I'll keep learning just in time. And I'll keep accumulating micro bachelors over my career. And maybe four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years later, I will get a bachelor's degree. And you know what? Maybe in 20 or 30 years, maybe bachelor's degrees won't be important anymore. People will just look for the competencies you're getting from these micro-credentials, and that's it. Once you're learning on the job, and the, micro, and the bachelor's degree comes later, suddenly it's not important anymore. I, I couldn't agree more with your view. One more, one more question I said that the, the last, the other was the last one, and what face-to-face -face education will be? Yeah. I think that You know, I'm, I strongly believe that education will be omni-channel. Just, like, uh, e just like commerce, some, for some things I go to the store. Like if I have to go buy a mango in Mexico, I'm not going to go to the online and buy a mango online. I'm going to look at the mango. I'm going to smell it. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to buy the mango. But if I'm buying a pair of socks or something, I'll just buy it online. So I think in shopping... Shopping is moving towards omni-channel shopping, online and in-person. Similarly, education is already becoming omni-channel, where all universities will be offering online and in-person experiences. Within the in-person experience, a live interaction can be very beneficial. I think a lecture is not a good way of live interaction. But one-on-one -on -one conversation, maybe teamwork, maybe doing a project together, That is very important. We've also introduced edX Live on edX, uh, initially for our master's degrees, and then we'll introduce it for micromasters and so on, where using Zoom and so on, you can have live interaction, but it's not in person. You can have synchronous live interaction uh, using video, and that can be useful online as well. Okay. Very interesting. So omnichannel in that future where... Modular, uh, omnichannel, uh, lifelong. Lifelong. Yes. I like it. I like your future, Anand. We will uh, I look forward to uh, building the future together. Let's do it. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for this conversation, Anand. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks.
For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producer, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.